just a few minutes, we're going to be looking at just one verse um, this morning, and it's going to be Romans chapter 1, verse 1. If you'd like to go ahead and find your way there, it's on our website, it's in the Bible app and that sort of thing. If you'd like to go ahead and, and uh, make your way there this morning, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, as we start this series through the book of Romans. Uh, this first part of the message will be an introduction to the book of Romans, and then we will tackle that one verse, Romans 1. one. I have to be entirely honest as we start this series on Romans, I'm not adequate to preach through this book. The book of Romans is an intimidating book where Paul lays out some complex theology that's difficult for many, many people to grasp. Whenever I stand in the pulpit, I'm very much aware of my inadequacy. Even as Paul said, who is adequate for these things? And as I began to study Romans more deeply for this series, I became incredibly aware of my inadequacy to preach through the book of Romans. We will discover profound theological truths in this book. And I genuinely believe that if the Lord will just give us a glimpse of the majesty of these truths that are found in the book of Romans, we will be like Paul. And we will say, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. So what I'm saying to you, church, is that over the course of the next few years, I have a daunting task. It's to teach God's unsearchable judgments and his inscrutable ways in such a way that we will all be in wonderment at our God and we will bow in worship before him. Let me be clear, there are parts of the book that I do not fully understand, and that's okay. But let me also be clear, this causes fear as I stand before you to teach this book. Because my fear is that I would proclaim something that is not true. I'm going to use this introduction time to give us an intro to the book of Romans, starting with the influence of the book of Romans. That's not in your outline. You would have to add it if you want to do that. You can be my guest and do that. But, but we're going to look first at the influence of the book of Romans. When I started looking in depth at the book, I was amazed at how God has used the book of Romans in remarkable ways to influence some of my heroes of the faith. In AD 386, Augustine, who was from North Africa, was a professor of rhetoric in Milan, Italy. Augustine was a follower of Manichaeism, which was a false cult. He was under conviction about his sins, but was unwilling to follow Christ. So he sat in his friend's garden, weeping, when he suddenly heard a child on the other side of the fence singing, Tole le, tole le. Take up and read. Take up and read. And so he picked up the scroll that lay by his friend's side, and his eyes randomly fell on Romans 13, verses 13 and 14, 
which tells us, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Later in his confessions, Augustine would write, no further would I read. He tells us, nor had I any need. Instantly, at the end of this sentence, a clear light flooded my heart, and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. He was saved from his life of sexual immorality, and he would go on to become the most influential man in church history from the time of Paul to the Reformation, which was 1,000 years after Augustine lived. Martin Luther, who God used to start the Reformation, was different. Luther was far from being an immoral man. Instead, he was a strict monk. He fasted. He prayed. He treated his body severely to find peace with God. Luther felt condemned because he knew the sin that lurked deep inside of his heart. He would pour over Scripture over and over again constantly trying to find answers. And he came to wrestle with this text in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, which says, For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, and it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. Instead of loving God as he should, Luther found himself hating God. In his heart, because of, of this impossible standard, that he felt God's law required in order to be perfectly righteous. Thought, Who can attain this task? As Luther wrestled with this text, God opened his eyes to see that God's righteousness is what is imputed to the guilty sinner who has faith in Jesus Christ. Luther wrote that then he felt reborn and that he had entered into paradise. Scripture took on a new meaning for him, and the concept of God's righteousness, rather than filling him with hate, now became expressly sweet in greater love. This is what Luther said about Romans, that it was the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. It was 200 years later when John Wesley had formed a holy club. That's what it was, a holy club at Oxford, where they strived to live in a manner that was pleasing to God. Wesley had served as a missionary in Georgia, but had failed miserably. And then on May 24th, 1738, Wesley was in great agitation. He went to a meeting at Aldersgate Street in London, where he heard someone reading from the preface of Luther's commentary on Romans. And Wesley wrote in his journal at about a quarter before nine while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken my sins away, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That conversion of John Wesley was what sparked the great 18th century revival that changed the history of England. All of these examples are, are found just reading some commentaries on Romans. The book of Romans also had a profound impact on the church father Chrysostom, 
who had it read to him twice a week. God used Romans and John Bunyan's conversion as well. The English poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge sat, said this about Romans. It is the profoundest piece of writing in existence. All of these examples are just reading through different commentaries that tell you the history. The point is that God in his sovereignty has used the book of Romans as some very key moments in church history. In his commentary on Romans, Godin says this, every great spiritual revival in the church will be connected as effect and cause with a deeper understanding of this book, the book of Romans. Every great spiritual revival in the church will be connected, he says, to Romans. I don't know about you, church, but I want a spiritual revival. And may this be the start of it. So what's the theme of Romans? Well, that's hard. Because Romans, if, we, if you were to read through the book of Romans, there's not just one single subject when it comes to the book of Romans. Instead, there's a variety of all these different subjects that the author deals with. However, there is a central topic that Paul takes up over and over again in the book of Romans. And I believe that theme is this, that the, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. It is what Godet says, the offer of the righteousness of God to the man who finds himself stripped by the law of his own righteousness. Or as John Calvin puts it, that man's only righteousness is through the mercy of God in Christ, which being offered by the gospel is apprehended by faith. To sum it up, the overall theme of Romans is the gospel, which is the good news that God declares sinners to be righteous with a trust in the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, on their behalf. It is the imputed righteousness of justification and the imparted righteousness of sanctification that is progressively at work in every believer's life through the power of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now we're going to briefly look at the author, the date, the recipients, and the purpose. There's no one that really challenges who wrote the book of Romans. Paul is the author. Paul wrote Romans and did so using a secretary by the name of Tertius, according to chapter 16, verse 22. Paul wrote Romans while he was in Corinth, according to Acts 20, verses 2 and 3. And it was probably around AD 56 to 58. This was when he was just about to go to Jerusalem with a gift for the poor that he had collected from the Gentile churches of Macedonia and Achaia. Phoebe, who is mentioned in chapter 16 of Romans, was from a port city near Corinth. She most likely carried this letter to the church at Rome. After his ministry was complete in Jerusalem, Paul wanted to pass through Rome to do some uh, ministry, and then eventually Paul wanted to go to Spain. We really do not know how the church in Rome started. It's nearly certain that contrary to Roman Catholic tradition, it was not started by Peter. Because if Peter had been there, Paul would have addressed him in his long greeting list in chapter 16. Most likely some Jews who were present on the day of Pentecost ended up getting saved 
and they returned home to Rome. And by the time Paul writes this letter, the church contained Jews, but it was predominantly a church that was a Gentile church. And as I said, as we read Romans, we have all this rich theology, but the question still remains, why did Paul write this letter? Why did he write these truths in this book to this church in Rome? Let me answer that question for you. Nobody knows. <laughs> we, we, do, we do not know. Nobody knows well, why, why, was, why was he writing to Rome and what, you know, what, was, what was the whole point. Nobody really knows. People have guessed, well, he intended to visit uh, this church and wanted to secure this uh, as a Western base on his way to Spain. Some have said that Paul is addressing the Judaizers who plagued his ministry every step of the way and, and tried to inflict their heirs in the Roman church. So Paul is defending the gospel of grace and that, that he preached everywhere and, and um, felt it was necessary to write this longer treatise in the book of Romans to expand the themes that he had earlier written in the book of Galatians. We do not know, um, we don't know. We do know this, that part of the reason Paul wrote the letter was to help resolve conflicts that were going on between Jewish and Gentile believers in Rome over various food and Sabbath laws, as we're going to see when we eventually get to chapters 14 and 15. Thomas Schreiner sums it up by saying this, from the inception of the letter, Paul wants to persuade the Romans that his gospel is orthodox and worth supporting. His goal is to unify the Roman church and to rally them around his gospel so that they will help him to bring the gospel to Spain. Lastly, I want to give you an outline, which just kind of gives you a flow of thoughts. I found this outline. Uh, I wish I could tell you how many commentaries I've read this week. It's been a lot, and I wish I could tell you how many thousands of words have gone into my brain, and I don't, I don't even know how my brain was able to hold it all, which it wasn't, because I think most of it has already left, but um, I liked what I found in the Bible exposition commentary, because I thought, I thought this was really good, and it's easy to remember, because they all start with S, except for the first one, okay? So all start with S, quick outline of the Book of Romans. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 is, as you can guess, it's the introduction and theme. In chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 5, verse 21 um, deals, or chapter 1, verse 18, sorry, <laughs> through chapter 3, verse 20 deals with sin. And then chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 5, verse 21 deals with salvation. In chapter 6, verse 1 through chapter 8, verse 39 deals with sanctification. Chapter 9, verse 1 through chapter 11, verse 36 deals with sovereignty. And chapter 12, verse 1, through chapter 16, verse 27, deals with service. So you have an introduction, then you have sin, you have salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and service. Of course, many of us are probably familiar with Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And then in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul shows just how God in his righteousness is, to, is opposed to all sin. Not some sin, all sin. And not only all sin, but he's opposed to all people because all people have sinned. The good pagans that did not have the law of Moses sinned apart from the law of Moses, and they will perish because of their sin, Paul is going to point out. 
The religious Jews who had received the law have sinned and they will perish because of their sin, Paul points out. And for this reason, no one can hope to be justified in the sight of a holy God. At least, not by their own goodness or their obedience to the law. And Paul's going to make this abundantly clear. There is no hope to be justified by your own works. And since no one can be justified, justified by their own goodness, salvation must be by God's grace alone. And this is what we see in chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus Christ offered himself as the only sacrifice for our sins, which satisfies the justice of God. By faith alone, we lay hold of the benefits of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Just as Abraham and David did, it is faith in Christ that brings reconciliation between us and God, and that in turn brings us peace and joy and hope, and even when we are in the midst of trials, by God's grace, our old identity with Adam is replaced by our new identity with Christ. And then in chapter 6, verse 1, through chapter 8, verse 39, Paul declares... That just because we know Christ as Savior, that doesn't give us permission to abuse His grace and to continue to live in sin. Instead, our identification with Jesus in His death and in His resurrection shows that we have died to our old life. And we live to the new life. The power of sin in our life is broken because we are no longer under the old law, but we're now under grace. And though we still have this indwelling sin within us that we constantly struggle with daily, you know what else we have? The indwelling Holy Spirit. And because the Holy Spirit indwells in us, we get to claim victory in Christ Jesus. It is the hope of our future glory and the assurance of God's unfailing love that sustains you and I in all of our trials. And then as we move on to chapter 9, chapters 9 through 11, we see this great plan of God unfold. We have this problem because it appears that God's covenant people, which was the Jews, have rejected their Messiah. Has God's promises to Israel failed? This is not so. God has always set his choice on a remnant while passing by others. We will clearly see this in chapters 9 through 11. This can be seen when God chooses Isaac rather than Ishmael. When God chooses Jacob rather than Esau. When God has mercy on Moses and hardens Pharaoh's heart. Even so, God has temporarily set aside the Jews because they rejected Christ, and he has poured out his grace on the Gentiles, which is great news for you and I, right? Because we're Gentiles. In the end, God will use the Gentiles to bring salvation again to the Jews, all according to his great wisdom and for his great glory. And lastly, we have chapter 12 through the end of chapter 16, where we see that the call is that we give our entire being, all that we have to serve God with practical godliness. All of our relationships should be marked by this loving service to God. We should be subject to civil government, and we should use caution that we do not 
wound our fellow believers with our liberty in Christ. We should work to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And in a display of Christian love, Paul warmly greets his friends in Rome. And then he ends with this final warning. Be on guard against those who will cause dissension and strife. So that's an intro to the book of Romans. A synopsis of the book of Romans. I know that was a long introduction, but I think it's fitting for us to know what we're getting into as we get ready to study the book of Romans. So with that, I'd ask that you please stand out of respect for God's word as we read just this one verse, the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. From the Apostle Paul. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Let's pray. Father, we've gone through an introduction. May your word penetrate our hearts. May it humble us. Lord, may we be slaves of the gospel of God. May we understand exactly what that is. Speak for your saints who are listening. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So for the next few minutes, I want us to see a few things. First, that Paul was an ordinary man. Secondly, that Paul had a master. Thirdly, that Paul was given a mandate. Fourthly, that Paul was on a mission. Fifthly, that Paul proclaimed a message. And you're saying, how in the world are you going to get five points out of one verse? Watch them. Because they're all there, right? They're all there. First, Paul was an ordinary man. And you might be thinking, well, Paul was an apostle, and he wrote a good portion of the New Testament. How in the world was Paul an ordinary man? Let me be clear. We are all ordinary men and women, and the only thing that's extraordinary about any of us is Christ in us. And the same is true about Paul. Now, this letter to Romans follows a common formula from the letters at the time. They would begin by identifying the author and then naming the recipients of the book. And then there would be a word of greeting. All of the New Testament letters are being, uh, have that. They, they start that way, with the exception of Hebrews and 1 John. F.F. F. Bruce, in his commentary on Romans, says this, There is more autobiography in this letter than meets the eye. The autobiography of a man who has been justified by faith. I'm not going to give you all the details of Paul's conversion, but Paul was a zealous Jew who was bringing intense persecution to the church. Paul was personally responsible for the imprisonment and the death of many Christians. He was traveling on the road to Damascus, and the Lord struck Paul down. He blinds him with a vision of himself. And God then commands this man who had been persecuting the church to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, whom he formerly hated. 
God would use Paul to take the gospel to Europe, which in reality is why most of us are now Christians. Many of us do not have some sort of dramatic conversion as Paul had. But you know what? Every one of us should ask ourselves, has my heart truly been changed by personally experiencing the grace of God and the death of Christ and the resurrection on my behalf? Am I really a new person through faith in Jesus Christ just like Paul? You see, Paul was an ordinary man who was made extraordinary by the grace of God. We are ordinary, but we too can be made extraordinary by God's grace. Do you know that grace today? Has that grace made you extraordinary? Have you been changed by the grace of God? Now notice, not only was Paul an ordinary man, but Paul had a master. Paul had a master. Paul refers to himself as a servant of Christ. And that word servant in the Greek language is this word doulos. And it literally means slave. The emphasis of the word is this subordinate, obligatory, and responsible nature of their service in their exclusive relation to his Lord. The slave owes his master exclusive and absolute obedience. His work earned him neither profit nor thanks. He was only doing what he owned as a bond slave. Why would Paul call himself a slave for Christ? Why would he do that? Well, because Paul understood something. He was bought. There was a price that was paid for him. And that was the blood of Jesus Christ. This means that Paul is no longer his own man. This means that he is now belongs exclusively to Christ. What's his purpose? To carry out not Paul's will, but to carry out the will of Christ. Christ was the focus of Paul's life. You could say that Christ was the center of Paul's universe. Just look at all the times that Paul makes reference to Jesus Christ in the first seven verses. He says Christ Jesus in, in verse 1. He says his son in verse 3. He says his son Jesus Christ our Lord in verse 4. He says the sake of his name referring to Christ in verse 5. He says Jesus Christ in verse 6. And the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 7. Paul had a master. And Jesus was his master. <clears throat> How should that be applied to our lives? Are you a slave of Christ? Just ask yourself that question. Am I a slave of Christ? Is Jesus my master? Because he purchased me with his blood? Do I view my life every single day as not my own, but it belongs to Christ? Do I get up in the morning and am I ready to serve my master? Am I seeking to be obedient to Christ? 
Am I capturing even every thought that I have and bringing that into obedience to my master? Is Jesus central to everything I do, to my thoughts, to my actions, to my words? Do I really stop and think about Christ? Is this Christ pleasing? Is this Christ glorifying? Is this Christ exalting in what I do, in what I say, in how I live, in everything? Is Christ central? Is he really your master? Paul had a master. So do we. Third, Paul was given a mandate. Paul was given a mandate. Look what he says. He says that he's called to be an apostle. What makes Paul an apostle? I mean, did Paul go online onto the, I don't know, the Jerusalem interweb or whatever it is and take one of those vocational tests and it said, Paul, we recommend you be an apostle because of your personality. Maybe he took a personality profile and said, you're an apostle. Paul was zealously pursuing his chosen religious career. Paul was on the fast tracks of rising in the ranks of Judaism by persecuting the church. When God showed up and knocked him on his rear, saved him, he told Paul, rise and go into Damascus and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do, Acts 22.10. And the mandate was to be an apostle, which means sent one to the Gentiles whom Paul had formerly hated. The assignment included suffering much for the name of Christ. You see, being an apostle carried with it the unique authority of laying the foundation of the church. But Paul says he was called to be an apostle in the ESV. However, in the Greek literally says this, a called apostle. And I like that language better than called to be an apostle or called an apostle or even called to become an apostle. Because the meaning is that Paul was effectually called by God to the office of apostle, which is to emphasize that Paul receives his authority not from some man, or from a group of men, or from people, but that Paul receives his authority directly from God. One commentator states this, any reading of this great theological treatise that ignores this claim to authority will fail to come to grips with the ultimate purpose of its writing. So what is the application here? Well, we should ask ourselves if our heart is in submission to what God has revealed through his called apostle, Paul. Is my heart in submission? I want to take a moment and let everyone know ahead of time that one of the difficult topics that we will deal with when it comes to Paul's writing in the book of Romans will be predestination. There's no avoiding it. We're not going to go up to chapter 9 and be like, oh, time to skip this chapter. <laughs> but 
what we have to realize, church, is it's not Paul's word. It's not Paul's word. It's God's word. All of it. It's all God's word, right? Do we really believe that? I mean, it's all God's word from Genesis to Revelation. It's not like, well, this is Paul's word and this is Matthew's word and this is Moses' words. And... No, it's God's word. And if we're going to be a Christian, if we're going to say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm a follower of God, then I must submit to this. It's not optional. It doesn't, well, I can only submit to the parts that I like or that I want to submit to. We have to submit to it all. Is your heart in submission to what God reveals in his word. When you read something, when you hear something from God's word and it immediately speaks to your conscience, do you submit to that? Fourthly, notice this. Paul was on a mission. Right? He says that he set apart for the gospel of God. From the very beginning, Paul was designed by God for the proclamation of the gospel. What is interesting is that word for set apart is related in the Greek to the word Pharisee, which is what Paul used to be. The Pharisees were prideful as they viewed themselves as being set apart from the common Jews. I'm, I'm set apart from these commoners. I'm better than them. They were expressly set apart from those, uh, especially set apart from those Gentile dogs, that's for sure. But in this fantastic case of irony, don't you, just love, don't you love how God works? Paul is now set apart for the purpose of the proclamation of the gospel. And he will now proclaim the riches of Christ to the very Gentiles whom he hated. Paul used the exact same word in Galatians 1, 15 and 16 where Paul says this. But when he who had set me apart before I was born. And who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. <laughs> I love this last part. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Paul knew who set him apart. He was like, well, I, I got to figure this out. I got to talk to some people and make sure that this is exactly what's happening. Everything that Paul did was for the sake of the gospel. Well, how do we know that? Because he says so. In 1 Corinthians 9, 23, where he said, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. And I know that few people are called to full-time ministry or full-time preaching, but this is not an excuse for not growing in evangelism, folks. It's no excuse. Our lives should be focused more and more on the gospel. First, for our own souls and then the overflow of the gospel in our life is to proclaim that gospel to other people we should be asking ourselves an application if we are increasingly viewing our life as being set apart for the gospel and if the answer is no then why not Paul was on a mission we are on a mission Lastly, I want us to notice this. Paul proclaimed a message. 
Paul proclaimed a message. Paul said, it is the gospel of God. The way I understand that is this, that Paul is saying that the gospel comes from God. God is the source of the gospel. God devised the plan before the foundations of the world. Acts 2.23, Acts 4.27 and 28 tells us this. As uh, 1 John 4.10 declares, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Not only does the gospel come from God, but the gospel is all about God. God is both the source of the gospel and God is the object of the gospel. The gospel is about how we as sinners have this, can have this right relationship to God through the sacrifice of his son. It's all about how God can be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. I like the way that John Piper puts it when he says this, God is the gospel. God is the treasure that we receive when we believe the good news of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins. Leon Morris says that God is the most important word in Romans. Romans is all about God. Everything that Paul touches in the letter is related to God. The word God occurs 153 times in Romans. An average of once every 46 words. This is more than in any other New Testament writing except for the short 1 Peter and 1 John. Apart from common words and phrases, no word is used as frequently as God in the book of Romans. God is indeed the most important word, and there is nothing like it anywhere else. The gospel is the ultimate good news that says even though we're sinners, God made a way. Even though we're separated from God, God made a way through the sacrifice of his son to reconcile us to himself. And though it cost God his son, it's free to everyone who believes in the gospel. Stop and think for just a moment at what we find in Romans in the gospel of God. Think of the lengths that God went to get this gospel out. God chose the author before he was born. God then purchased his freedom by the death of his son. God then called him out, making him an apostle. And then God gave him a gospel that was the gospel of God himself. So God is all through this. It's all about God. It starts with God. It ends with God. And God is in between everything else. Why? Why would it be that way? So that you and I might hear the good news of the gospel of God. How incredible is that? What a mighty, awesome, and great God that we serve. Ask yourself this morning. Am I growing to know God more deeply? Do I have an understanding of God? that is shaped more by popular cultural ideas of how I want God to be or by the great doctrines that are found in the Bible. And is this good news that is from God and about God increasingly good news to me? To the point that I long to share this news with other people.
I conclude with this. When we think of Romans, we think of a deeply theological book. It has stretched the minds of some of the most brilliant theologians for centuries. But Paul wrote it to a church that's made up of common people. Many of them slaves. You see, God knew that we all need the message that's found in Romans. Very simply, we need to be stripped of our self-righteousness so that we will have no choice but to flee to Christ as our only righteousness. And then being justified by faith, we need to grow in righteous conduct and in relationships. We need to grow and understand and embrace the gospel of God. And we need to proclaim the gospel of God. God went through these great lengths for us to have the gospel. But here's the thing, Christian. We don't have the gospel of God to hoard it. You don't take the gospel and, oh, i got to find a good place to hide this gospel. Oh, here's a good spot. I'm going to hide it under here. Wait, I'm going to put it way back here. I'm gonna, there we go. Nobody will find it back there. Well, that seems silly. Yeah. That's what we do. That's what we do. We hide the gospel. Hoard it. Oh. I gotta hold up. You want the gospel? I gotta find it. Why? Why do we do that? We have the gospel so that we might proclaim it. Are you doing that? You proclaiming the gospel? You know that wasp, they send out scout wasps. The job of the scout wasp is to locate honey. And when the scout wasp finds a hive of honey, it will return to the nest and he gives the great news to all of the other wasps. I don't know, I don't speak wasp. But he lets all the other wasps somehow know that he's found honey. And then all the wasps go in numbers to overwhelm the hive and partake of the honey that the scout wasp found. Furthermore, the more wasps break into the honey cells and eat the honey inside, the stronger the honey smell will be. And it attracts more wasps. We found the honey. We've partaken of the honey. Jesus Christ is sweeter than anything this world has to offer. Will we have no more consideration of our fellow human beings than these wasps for their fellow insects? We should be spreading the good news. We should be telling people about what we have found. We don't conceal the discovery. Grace has allowed us to find the gospel of God. Jesus Christ. Oh, dear church. Don't hide it. Perhaps you're hearing this message and you realize you've never really trusted in Christ. You can trust in Christ today. You can place your hope in him by praying something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are God's son.
that you died to forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. I turn from my sin. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. I want to live for you the rest of my life. It's not this magic prayer. Christ saves you when you trust in him. I've tasted of the sweetness of Christ. He has saved me. I want him to save you. If you said that prayer or something like it, I'd love to follow up with you. You can come forward. You can, if you're online, you can text the word faith to 309-328-3488. You can do that from your pew. You can just send a random text message if you want to. I'll try to respond to that. Charles Spurgeon said this. A great many learned men are defending the gospel. No doubt it's a very proper and right thing to do, yet I always notice that when there are most books of that kind, it is because the gospel itself is not being preached. Yet I always notice that when there are most books of that kind, it is because the gospel itself is not being preached. Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads and they had to defend that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of beasts. There he is in his cage. And here comes all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. They have to defend the lion. Well, I would suggest to them if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should just kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending the lion. For he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel, listen, is to let the gospel out. Never mind about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ. Let the gospel out. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let the lion out. See who dare approach that lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah will soon drive away all his adversaries. Listen, we are to be like Paul. And we are just like him because we are ordinary people. But I ask you this. Is Jesus your master? And if so, have you been given a mandate? Yes, you have. And we must be on mission of proclaiming the message that he has given to us. Oh, that we would be slaves for the gospel of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. For this word. <clears throat> Lord, you know the struggles of my heart. This book is so deep and rich. Lord, just as I proclaimed, I am an ordinary man. Oh, but you 
made me extraordinary. Lord, there may be people in these pews right now. I'm just an ordinary person. Oh, but God, through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, you have made them extraordinary. That we would take your gospel, the gospel of God, and we would be slaves for it. Your son would be our master. We would submit to his will. And then when we read your word, we would be immediately submissive to it. It's not optional. Lord, I don't know how you may have spoken through this message this morning or how you may use it in the future. But I pray that we would ask ourselves, are we truly slaves to the gospel of God? No, God, if the answer comes back, no. Put us on our knees. Drive us to the altar. <coughs> Make us get on our face, cast us into a million pieces. Oh God, that we would be slaves for the gospel of God. Start a revival. Maybe in us. If you've spoken to someone, they need Christ as their Savior. I pray today will be the day of salvation. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we sing, you be one to come this morning.